Marshall Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We were going to push off the discussion episode until next week, but the student loan forgiveness plan news dropped. So what we're going to do instead is do a shorter discussion episode on this topic. And I'm going to attach this to an interview with Beth Macy on the opioid crisis, which is also coming out at the end of this episode. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Of course, you guys know the deal. These extra episodes, this extra content is brought to you by Supercast. Folks who've gone to realignment.supercast.com, five a month, 50 a year, 500 for a lifetime membership. This gets you access to bonus content, community features, Q&A. We know you guys love those AMA episodes. And most importantly, it helps us upscale the show. I'm going to start doing in-person recordings in Austin. That's going to be a real game changer for our content, but it's also going to actually significantly increase the costs here. So we'd love to get that support. Once again, that's realignment.supercast.com. Okay, Sagar, let's get into the news, which will not be breaking by Friday, but is going to be pretty, uh, let's say, moment setting no matter what happens this month. What's up with the student loan plan? Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and bring up the actual announcement. This is from President Biden so that there is no accusations that I am spinning things. All right. Here's what the Biden administration graphic says. By the way, they released this on Twitter, which I actually do find kind of noteworthy and kind of cool. Forgiving debt. There will be a $20,000 debt forgiveness if you went to college on Pell Grants. There will be $10,000 if you do not receive Pell Grants. Forgiveness only applies to those who are earning less than $125,000. Student loan pause extends one final time through the December 31st, 2022. Payment based upon income. If you have undergraduate loans, you can cap repayment at 5% of your monthly income from here on out. Of course, we should note that this only applies to federal loans. It does not apply to private loans, of which many millions of people and actually a large amount of student debt is applied to. So that is the official announcement, Marshall. This comes after, I don't want to, I want to say what, 18 months of wrangling inside the Biden administration, probably a more like a year in terms of uh, how long it's been kicked around. Progressives have been asking for full student debt cancellation. A lot of this actually hinges upon a pretty novel interpretation of the law that stems from Obamacare. President Biden himself is actually using a post 9-11 law that allows for debt cancellation, quote, in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency with the current COVID-19 pandemic per a Department of Education memo, which was issued yesterday by the administration. So, that's the policy. Um, in terms of how I feel about it, I mean, Marshall, you and I, and I think this is important. There are a lot of Republicans and conservatives even out there who are like, I'm against any debt forgiveness. And I think that's ridiculous. I'm not for student. I'm not for, I'm, I'm 100% okay conceptually with the idea of wiping out all student debt just because I think it's immoral. I think the fact that you can't discharge it, the fact that it caps earnings in your early 20s has all sounds of downstream negative social effects. I think the college wage premium um, has gone down significantly. There's a number of reasons why. So my argument against this policy is going to hinge entirely on a graphic, uh, which I tweeted out this morning, which is that if you cancel the current, I have this chart pulled up in front of me. This is from the CRFB, the Center for Responsible Federal Budget. If you cancel $10,000 in student debt, the amount of overall outstanding debt will return to the 1.8 trillion figure where it is today in just four 
years, which effectively means that everybody in college right now, as you and I are speaking, when they graduate or after like they're all out and there's a new class in, we're exactly right back to where we started. And um, I'm just going to go out on a limb and predict that we're not going to have the convenient excuse of COVID next time to just unilaterally cancel $10,000 in student debt. And I think the biggest problem is, is that if we're not going to fix higher education incentive financing structure, then what are we doing here, folks? Like, I agree. $10,000 is great. You know, I, I feel very happy. As I understand it, it means what 31% of the people who are in the IDR program that will have their w- debt wiped out, uh, an additional 20% will What's have the their IDR half. program. It's like uh, the, the fast repayment program. Um, I, I forget what the acronym is. Anyway, again, this all only, again, only applies federally because we don't actually, the private figure is different and doesn't apply to any of this, including interest payments. So the reason I'm against this policy is because right now, the higher education financing system is genuinely so broken that even calling it broken is cliche. Not dealing with that, not figuring out how to make sure that this never happens again while enacting this policy is incredibly foolish. And everybody out there who's like, but we can do both, sorry, you're just not going to. Like the idea that the Biden administration is going to take on one of its core constituencies, which is colleges, universities, and specifically like university administrative graduates and all those other people, probably the most reliable democratic demographic in the entire country is ridiculous. It's it's absolutely not going to happen. They have no incentive in order to do so. And what saddens me is that there are a lot of Republicans out there talking a big game they're like, we got to go after these corrupt colleges, but they also don't believe in any debt forgiveness. So I don't know. It's a very, very, it's a good uh, dichotomy there. I'm curious for what you think, especially on the Pell Grant part. Yeah. So most important thing to say right out of the bat, you and I like don't have college debt. So yeah, right. Right. Like it's, it's, that sucks if, if you have college debt, especially if you've come up to your point, Sagar, under that system. So like when we say what we're saying, it's because we actually think what we're thinking here while also mm-hmm. acknowledging that like unironically, this is a case of personal privilege. Um, that said, uh, a couple of things to note. One, to people who, to your point, Sagar, say, why can't you do both? Fix the system and forgive. There's actually a convenient answer we have now. We've just run. A 20 month experiment of can you do both? You had 20 months where you had this once in a lifetime experience of COVID, where, and actually, Sagar, it's even worse when you think about it because so you didn't just have this 20 month period, but you actually had this period where schools closed, everything changed. People were really asking themselves, wow, do we really want to go to college when it's under Zoom school? So you had just the perfect confluence of crisis and opportunity to actually reform the system. So Yes, Sagar, it's correct that the Democratic Party obviously has incentives and constituencies and all these different bits that be against reform. If there was ever a period where you could see it hypothetically happening under the right leadership, it could have been now. The mm-hmm. fact that that did not happen is the real disaster. Um, second point here would really come down to the fact that I don't support, I don't support this policy. Um, I don't support the fact, I don't support it because of A, to your point, Sagar, it's not actually fixing the underlying problem. So what you're going to see is we're going to come back to this exact scenario in four years and we're not actually going to do anything to get rid of the incentives. And the incentives right now, if you are a higher education administrator, you're thinking to yourself, look, like we aren't really controlling our costs. We didn't even lower costs during Zoom school. Yes. They actually and increased them, Marshall. They they, increased yeah, them. you're right. They, yeah. they increased, they increased costs during Zoom school. And then all that ended up doing is 
is leading to the federal government not only causing a multi-year freeze on all payments, aka the customers who are being served by the university aren't going to be hurt by it, but B, you now know in the back of your mind, well, push comes to shove there will probably be another bailout coming in the year 2036. This is really just like immigration reform of the 1980s. Like mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan had his big, um, you know, real compromise. He legalized a whole bunch of um, undocumented immigrants and it didn't actually resolve the underlying debate about the border. So cool. We solved the problem for a few years, but by the nineties, we were back there again. So we're just yep. clearly going to be stuck in the same cycle. Yeah, it really, it really bothers me. You know, also, and this is a point that libertarians make, and they're not wrong. I looked into it. I'm doing a full monologue on all of this. You know, the New York Federal Reserve did a landmark study over 20 years, and they found that for every $1 increase in federally subsidized student debt, that student tuition actually increased by 60 cents. So we're talking there about a direct, you know, not true one-to-one, -one, but as close to one-to-one -one as possible. And the other thing is that, you know, that other 40 cents on the dollar, that uh, where does that where does that go? It goes to debt servicing. It goes to actually bilking people out of money. So you're getting screwed on both ends. There's another really cool study by ACTA. It's like the Association of Colleges and Teachers Organizations. They did an interesting study. This is, by the way, just up until 2018. So 2011 to 2018. Although I think that's fair. That's really when things exploded. They found that over 1,500 federal, you know, federally subsidized loans that are given to 1,500 different universities. So not sorry, sorry, 1,500 universities that accept federally subsidized loans. They legally have to report like all their costs. They found that the area of student life, quote unquote, which received the least amount of investment was instruction. There's actually been a cut on instruction, on tenure, and on research. The areas of cost increase that were most dramatic were, quote, student services and administration. So we are talking here about untold billions poured into mostly, I'm not going to say useless, uh, but bureaucratic uh, organizations, new dorms, the famous lazy river at LSU, um, many of these other places. And the truth is, these people are printing cash on top of that. On top of that, the total value of university endowments over the last decade is genuinely shocking. Harvard alone is sitting on $40 billion in an endowment. Yale is sitting on 30. The total value is actually 650 billion. And of those 650 billion, Marshall, there are people on Wall Street making a genuine killing off of these people because these endowments, which are booming, which they are not using for student aid, student services. They're taking a lot of this tuition money and frankly, just increasing the size of their endowment. They are hiring major firms and have become major players in private equity, in venture capital and elsewhere. And so I just think the system is ludicrous. I mean, you know, in that study, they actually found that this increase in spending, and this is what's shocking because increase in spending is like 500% or something like that over the last 20 years, had not one 1% increase on the graduation rate. And they also found that the only area of investment on graduation rate is instruction, which receives the least. And this also finally gets to a point which is so important. One quarter of people who enter a four-year college degree do not graduate from that institution. So they're fucked twice because they get the debt 
and they don't even get the modest wage premium that still does exist. Those people are so screwed. And look, that's why I cannot morally say I'm never for debt cancellation. I mean, these people have dischargeable debt of which they got no wage premium, of which they were subject to unfair marketing practices, blah, blah, blah. But, but, and this is the key, we've got to fix the problem because we can't be back here in four years. How, that means that right now, 25% of the people who are accruing student debt inside the US college education system will not graduate and will come out of it with a sizable amount of debt of which the likelihood that they will pay off is almost nothing. This is a huge problem. Yeah. And since we're just hitting this topic, this episode, I want to cover all angles. I want to talk about what you just said in terms of who should be forgiven. So the Biden administration has not been an entire disaster on this issue. They mm -hmm. just forgave $4 billion of loans of people who were screwed by ITT tech. Yeah. Uh, now, if you remember ITT tech and you're my, and you're in my and Sager's age cohort, you remember those kind of weird ads of play during like afternoon TV where it's kind of like college, but it wasn't really like college. It seemed kind yep. of sketch. Well, it was sketch. Uh, it basically went belly up and they just forgave $4 billion of loans. Because this is a private, this is like, you know, the private for-profit university that screwed a lot of people. That is the definition of where I think debt forgiveness should have been offered outright. That's a situation where not only is your degree not valid, but you actually were misled by the institution that was supported federally. The broadly speaking, the Biden administration has actually forgiven $32 billion worth of loans from people from these sort of for-profit universities. This is something that Betsy DeVos is education secretary under President Trump. She didn't do this. So like that is what the definition of a win looks like. The second category, and you mentioned this too, Sagar, are the people who did not graduate. So the mm. worst off people in our system right now are people who went to a school. Usually it's not like the best second, third tier, maybe even fourth tier. They got a bunch of debt and they didn't even graduate. So in that situation, you've got a bunch of debt. You're not even getting anything relating to the wage premium and you're just stuck with it. That is the next level where this really should have been prioritized. By just bringing everyone together into one bucket, it just seems like you've really made this really difficult. The next thing I want to hit here, and this is a real point of frustration, is that by doing this so close to the midterms in what is clearly a political base appeasing mm -hmm. mode, it's basically infected this topic for a generation. Yeah. You are not going to be able to have a rational conversation with anyone on the right about this topic without basically saying, oh no, isn't this just a gimme to all these different basic people? Well, it is. It, let's be honest, right? It, it is. And I, I think this is, look, for all, this is another thing that frustrates the hell out of me is the idea that this is some racial, listen, first of all, the racial equity so-called gap on this is bullshit. You know, the Brookings Institution, not me, the Brookings Institution, which, how would you describe that to a layman? Uh, center uh, left? Center of center yeah. left. Yeah, the, the center, <laughs> the most centrist of center left. Here's what they say, quote, student desk cancellation disproportionately benefits white, wealthier households because those are the people most likely to owe and to be paying down debt. Like, the fact of the matter is, is that White people, obviously larger part of the population, also disproportionately way more likely to go to college. And of the people who hold large amounts of debt and are the most likely to owe and to be paying, those people are white, white, wealthy, educated. I just described the Democratic Party's place. This is the One other thing. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and this is where I'll devil's advocate for Biden. That's, isn't that the point though of capping it at 125K a year? 
like your maximum 125k a year i mean how there's only like how what i don't even think that because think about it too remember family level if you're married that's 250 so two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. the family income of 250 that's maybe four percent of the i I need to look it up actually but but that's my point my point is i think what the biden folks would say is they'd say oh no like we agree with you that just canceling all debt would disproportionately help like wealthy people I think yeah. in this case, though, well, this if you're still saying- also helps wealthy people. That's the thing. I mean, there's there is no getting around it. Debt cancellation of any kind disproportionately benefits whites and especially upper mobile liberals. I mean, I just and look, I'm not against that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, white people who are liberal and upper middle class deserve not to be burdened by horrible debt too. But as you just pointed out, I mean, this is why I just don't agree with these types of targeted uh, things because they're just such clear political bailouts. I mean, imagine if we only bailed out people who were like non-college educated whites and it was Trump. That would be insane. Like it it would be an insane policy. I mean, what I really uh, was a huge fan of and legally this idea is dicey, but you know, right now I think some sort of loan forgiveness for America's youth program would just be like such a tremendous policy, which is you would look at student debt, and you know, people forget this, but you know, what fifty five percent? I want to say of Americans don't go to college. Vast majority of people in America do not go to college. So, okay, so you have those people who have a tremendous amount of credit card debt, um, a tremendous amount of debt, and you know, in many other areas of like car, whatever. Is you would find some way in order to make it so that if you're in that age group, that you could find some sort of debt forgiveness, loan relief, et cetera. That's what I think would real. that's what I think the country needs, which is an acknowledgement of like, listen, upward mobility between ages of 20 and 30, it's not working out whether you went to college and whether you're not. And, you know, I, I think people who are working class and looking at this, who are sitting on currently a 20 year high of credit card debt and, you know, inflation just absolutely destroying them, it's going to piss people off. Uh, and it's also going to piss off a lot of boomer conservatives. So I just think it's the worst of all, the worst of literally everything. And the thing that I've come to is, look, no matter what you do in any type of reform, people are going to be pissed off. Yeah. The question is, is the price of that anger worth it? So yeah. Sagar, let's say we get, and we'll get into this in a second, we get the laundry list of the reforms that Senator Kozlov and Senator Njeti would demand mm-hmm. of the higher ed system. And then debt's forgiven. People would still be pissed. Like you would still have someone who went to college in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who'd be pissed. But from my perspective, that would, that being, that anger would be Mm -hmm. worth it if we solved the problem. What sucks here is you're further polarizing the issue, but we're still just back here in four years. And in four years, there is no COVID reform excuse. So let's talk about, because people have pinged you and I about this. Sometimes our cynicism comes through and I want to just actually say mm. what we want. Um, let's talk about what we would want from like a better higher education system. I, I will say at the start, some of it concerns me is this discourse around like fake degrees and like poli sci and like those different bits, because here's where I don't want. I don't want a society where everyone who's like middle class and below 
has to go into STEM, has mm-hmm. to go into like very specific trades. And people like you and I who grew up upper middle class, we get to study bullshit, poli sci. We get to do those different things. So I want to stress to people that it's easy just to say, oh man, like it's crazy that there's underwater basket weaving degrees. Like we shouldn't support that. I think that's like a fair extreme example, but I don't want to go too far the other direction and live in a country where everyone who is middle class and below can't pursue their dreams, can't get educated, can't do different things, can't become artists or professors or musicians or teachers in those different bits. So you kind of, I don't, I don't want this discussion to be too forged around the fact that there are some kind of crazy degrees. Instead, what I'd more focus on are, are like specific institutions and like programs and the, and the way they're actually handling it. But that'd be my, that'd be yeah. my first thing I want to know. Like, how about you? Yeah. I'm looking some stuff up. Um, I think we cracked this around, I want to say like 1980, maybe 1990. So here's what I would say. The, the original college system of the 1920s was immoral. I think that was wrong. That is where, what's it, 5% of the U.S. population is uh, going yep. to college, something like that, pre-GI Bill. Not, it's a luxury good, purely for the elite. If you're working class, you have no ability in order to attain a professional degree. Also, the economy is different, so it's fine. Okay, so here's what the stats were around 1980, 1990. Between 16 to 20% of the U.S. population was college educated. I think that seems about right, which is that you have the opportunity you have uh, the want if you need it in you know the ability for access, like you said, programs in order to go through. But it is not the default floor for an entry level data position. So what we really need to do is uncouple huge parts of the service economy away from just some fake BA degree. Look, I mean, I have a degree in poli sci, I mean, a master's degree in security studies. These are the definitions of things you don't actually need. But I really enjoy those programs. I I learned a lot. Um, I still think about my master's program all the time. A lot of the books that I read and have deeply informed a lot of things that I bring people here on, you know, the way I look at the world and all that stuff. It, it meant a lot to me. It was a huge, a huge benefit. Same with um even my undergrad, you know, there's certain classes and things I, I that's still where it was dude, that's where it all that's where we met. Yeah, yeah, like but yeah, yeah. So take the social <laughs> stuff a, away. But no, yeah. I'm saying take put oh, the social okay. part of it aside, which also there's a massive, very important for. Uh, yeah, so I think that a college attainment figure around 20, 25%, that seems pretty good, which is you can have a quarter of the population that can go to college affordably if they want to, but the current place where we're at right now, so we're at, uh, with a four-year college degree, U.S. population, around 38%, way too high, uh, way too high, because it just bloats the service figure, it also just bloats the... Uh, it, it, it bloats the number who don't even know what they want to do. And then they go into college and they take out all of this debt. And a lot of this has to do with the financing system, which is that it's just way too easy in order to go into tens of thousands of dollars in student debt and then just decide to drop out and have no idea what you're doing. I mean, look, when you're 18 years old, you have no idea what it means to have $100,000 in debt. You're like, oh, yeah, whatever. Listen, that's a lifetime, you know, with interest, your inability to buy a house. What if you don't like your job? What if you want to move? I mean, the amount of crush that that puts on your life is just unbelievable. So, yeah, I, I think that we should return to making college a little bit m- more scarce in the country. And not actually, I mean, by current levels, a lot more scarce. But, yeah, I mean, I'm look, like I said, I'm looking at this chart. 
1998, yeah, 1998, it was 25%. That seems solid. I mean, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. That's, it was a pretty good balance in the economy. You can still have people who are skilled as long as the attainment is there. You still have the ability to go from lower to middle and middle to upper. Um, as long as we have, you know, intra-class like mobility and all that and have it less dependent on the four-year degree, that's, that seems pretty good. The real explosion from what I'm seeing was the financial crisis. 2008 really was like a demarcation point because 08 is also when the student debt problem exploded. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. I think I'd say that I'm less interested in the specific percentage getting higher or, or, or lowering just in the sense that I think the real flaw here and with current systems, like we're talking about like college, um, mm. I think 38 percent of the population having some form of higher education like makes a lot of sense. So what well, so what I would frame it as is current ratios or higher, but apprenticeships, useful community college programs, colleges that are more actually effective at like transmitting something. Because and I'm gonna sound as, you know, <laughs> World Economic Forum or Aspen Institute as I'll ever sound, like we're in a transforming like global economy and mm -hmm. Something beyond K through 12 is required. So America has the workforce of the future. I think there actually is something to that. My problem is, is that it's been too easy just to say what I just said, which is obviously true. And then mm -hmm. just have everyone just go to ineffective two and four year universities that don't actually result in a improved workforce. Yes. So to your point. So another thing I want to talk a bit about, because people are tweeting and talking about this, is the college endowment issue. You, you brought it up and folks have yeah. been tweeting about this. Harvard, actually, it's funny, you know, I'm in, I'm in Texas now and like the UT system actually is more, has, is actually, um, you has a bigger why? endowment. Yeah, oil and gas. It's oil. Fast. Yeah, I was going to say, because they don't divest from oil and gas. <laughs> they didn't divest from oil and gas. So, the, you know, the UT, the UT endowment's huge. But there's a lot of conservatives right now who are tweeting things like, Let's confiscate the wealth of these universities and use it to pay down debt because they're corrupt. They're the ones who are causing this problem. Body, 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 boss. So two things in response to that. One, like, let's get real. And this is the awkward thing. Put the culture wars aside. Like Harvard University is not the cause of this problem. Um, you go to Harvard, you're fine. Um, funnily enough, like there are some programs at Columbia. So like middle of Ivy League tier, I'd say, where they just will like, plop on like the words man. Columbia yeah. and, and film create like these terrible. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. There's a great Wall Street Journal article about yeah. this. Basically, um, Columbia sees their graduate degree programs as just like cash cows. So what they'll actually do is they'll say, yeah, like you could get a film studies um, degree in Columbia, you know, in New York City, that's bringing, that's putting you back like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year when you factor in tuition and costs, living, all those bits. And then you're just not getting employed in the actual field. Um, so Columbia is doing a bit of that. Harvard really isn't doing that. And even the UT system, the UT system is not the source of the problem. The so actual source of the problem, once again, are third, fourth, and fifth tier universities that actually cannot get people jobs. Yeah. Uh, if you go to Harvard undergrad, if you go to Columbia undergrad, even yeah, if you go to most fine. Columbia grad programs, you're fine. So I'm not going to place the blame there. The second part though, um, I had Josh Mitchell, who's at the Wall Street Journal. He has a book out on student loans. We did an episode back in May. I believe people want to listen to that if they haven't already. He said his reform to the endowment issue, what I actually agree with is he would just actually 
legally require institutions that get federal funding to spend higher percentages of their endowment on academics as you're referring to. Because like hundred percent. Because like let's get real. Exactly. Let's get real. Like yeah. Right wingers on my Twitter feed. There is no bill that's going to pass that's going to take Harvard's endowment. And frankly, I don't even think that's like. That doesn't even seem legal to me. And frankly, at a philosophical level, that seems just kind of like jacked up. Like if you're like, I'm not in favor of like a one-time wealth tax. I'm also not in favor of just saying, hey, Harvard, you've played by the rules as they operate. We're just going to take your money because we're amorphously blaming you for this problem. Instead saying, hey, Harvard, taxpayers are giving you Mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of millions, Mm -hmm. if not billions of dollars of subsidies. That's fine as long as you spend X percentage of your massive endowment on scholarships, cost of living. Another example is new dorm construction, increasing the size of the university so you could serve a bigger student population. Those, those different actual bits. So that's the actual endowment reform that would A, actually be passable and be implementable, but I think would actually address what people are really talking about there, which is like, wait a second, if the UT system is crushing it, why do we need the federal government to pour money into it? No, this is the thing. Yeah, look, this is this is what annoys me. Yeah, sure, okay, endowments, whatever. I'm using the endowments as an example of the fact that these people are filthy rich and they're not spending it on the thing, the number one thing that matters, instruction. Instruction is the, it's just crazy to me. Instruction cost has only gone up by 17%. Student services is 30. You know, an administration is like 25. And- Every dollar that you pour into instruction is actually also being cut on research, tenure. I mean, there's all kinds of problems with tenure, but it's a it's a good sub in for like how serious people do it. And yeah, it's like you have to be legally required to spend a significant. Also, let's. I mean, these people are also profiting a hell of a lot of money. I mean, a lot of these endowments grew massively over the pandemic. I mean, the stock market, S and P five hundred, and most of them are invested in funds that you and I will never be able to get into as normal citizens, which are yielding massive profits. And the whole, you know, theory of these things is, well, we use it on our students. It's like, no, you don't. You actually don't. That's part of the issue. And. You know, I'm looking also, as as you said, this is also gets very dicey. It's like University of Texas, that's a state-funded institution. Like you Mm -hmm. cannot be increasing tuition dramatically if you're printing all this money on Wall Street or through a BlackRock ESG fund. Texas A&M, where my parents work, um, same thing. They have a huge endowment because of oil and gas. And yet in-state tuition there has gone up significantly. You know, the cost of in-state tuition currently, right now in the United States Average in-state tuition cost is eleven thousand nine hundred per year. That's a ton of money. That's forty thousand dollars for a degree, for in-state, uh, out-of-state. I believe is like twenty. And private university average tuition, average on a yearly basis, forty-five thousand dollars. So that's what two hundred. That's one hundred and sixty grand, um, or plus one seventy or so. That's crazy. So, I mean, I also agree, which is in general. I start with in-state, state universities, the things that touch the vast majority of people's lives. Private universities are a racket, but also, listen, you know, it's America. You do have a choice. Like, nobody's going to force you to go to a private degree. And also, we have a lot more regulatory ability on places that receive state and federal funds. So that's another reason why I think this is all very important. Yeah, I think what you said is great. I 100% agree with that, which is that, you know, a good compromise is, yeah, you just have to spend it on students. Like, why is this, why is it such a hard thing? But my prediction, Marshall, is that that will never happen. Um, you know, 
And look, I, I'll pull that card, but you know, based on the reading that I've seen, the administrative bloat at some of these places is insane. And the amount of money, and again, with this, guess where all this new money is going? In the last five years, it's all this DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion personnel. I mean, you would not believe the figures of people at all of these universities that are getting paid full salaries, benefits, all of that. Michigan has 163. Virginia, 94. Ohio State, 94. California, 86. Virginia Tech, 83. Stanford, 80. Again, I even put the the uh, privates, you know, private universities like Stanford, Harvard, or whatever, they're always going to be cringe. Fine. But like the top th- four I listed are major universities based on states. That's outrageous to me that they're hiring all these people. So there you go. I think the last bit that I'm sure the left part of the audience is going to wonder about, like, what do we think about Universal Free College? Oh, terrible idea. I mean, Why for the that? reason I just said, most people don't need to go to college. That probably, that would decrease the wage premium. Uh, if you do want to go to college, it should be affordable. If you, I mean, at the end of the day, is college worth it today, right now, and especially enough in order to make it free? No, I don't think so. Um, it's something that is a luxury good, always has been. If anything, it's become too like uh, what? What? What's the word I'm looking for? It remains a luxury good, and yet has also become weirdly financially accessible, but not actually um, to people who don't not only need it but want it. And I just don't think there's a whole lot of evidence that would make people better off at all. Yeah, I think my beef here, and I think this is the way I explain this in a group chat we're a part of is that here's what actually happened with the loan forgiveness um, actual Mm -hmm. decision and the pause. So during the 2020 campaign, back when it seemed like the Bernie left was rising, economic conditions were different. One of the concessions that Biden, center left of the Democratic Party, made is we're going to do student loan forgiveness. Now, on a couple of different levels, the political environment is obviously different than it was in you know 2020 during mm-hmm. the primary. You're obviously not experiencing quite as much, let's say, like left wing economic energy. But the Biden folks like want to deliver for their actual coalition, so it's led to a situation where they're not going all the way, so they're not forgiving everything. And they also aren't fundamentally like reshaping the system. And I think this comes down to actually just like a distinct lack of vision around the higher education system. Now, to critique the left, which is driving the energy on this issue, I don't think that the left has a particularly attractive vision um, for the for, for higher education in a way that doesn't just lead to this problem reconstituting itself. Um I don't like the idea of universal free college basically leading to hyper-credential creep. So yeah, Sagar, exactly. as you put it, the question, and once again, like my disagreement was about like the idea of like what percentage do we need to set goes to college. But there's obviously a reality that anyone who's in a workplace will tell you is that, oh well, yeah, like what I do doesn't require a college degree. Um, and as much as we could say the workplace of the future, I think we'd really struggle outside of specific professions STEM, science, math, all those things, mm-hmm. engineering, um, computer science, how I'd say there's a gap between that rhetoric and what you're actually experiencing in the workplace. So what I see happening with universal free college is you just get into a situation where we go from a K through 12 situation to a K through 16, where you just have to go to college. If college yes, is free, right, then wait, like, why didn't you go on to college for four years? Like you could get a GED right now. You could drop out of school. 
when you're 16, 15, obviously, in most states. But if you do that, an employer is going to ask some questions. This is going to lead to that same exact situation, except it will go to 16 without the underlying issue solved. And also, let's just get to this point for a quick second. And once again, this is where us noting that we did not graduate from college with debt. You know, I went to University of Oregon in states so like that should like bear, you know, that, that does bear something. But here's mm. where that, you know, comes to effect. If we are in a situation where people go to higher education and they aren't able to increase their wage premium and actually pay off the debt they accrued, that's insane. Yeah, like that. Right. If you like, what's actually like, we don't talk about this enough. We right. should talk about the fact that, like, wait, and not you and I personally, just in this broader part of the discourse, it's like, wait, wait a second. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Obviously, there's the idea of the university as like this place of higher education and learning, liberal arts. That's not really like my cup of tea, but like, let's put that to a side. Like, that's a very small percentage of the population that is actually there. The vast majority of people who are going to higher, some form of higher education today are there because they see it as an investment in their future. If mm -hmm. they are pursuing that path and they are not able to pay back the debt that they have, that's crazy. Yes. Um, at, at a, at a literal level, like, let's also think about it this way. Like, let's just say to ourselves, okay, like, let's say like the federal government's going to assume that debt. It's just crazy to me that you could go to college, get, you know, mid five figures to low six figures of debt and not be able to pay that off over a reasonable amount of time. If yeah. you cannot do that, that is the central tragedy. And that to me is why you're so right to focus on the academics, the actual thing you are gaining here. And universal free college does not actually solve that problem. Because to me, it seems the problem is this thing, which we're having people do, isn't actually providing return outside for, 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 for a huge percentage of people. So what I would really stress, I want like left folks to focus on is like, how do we make college not turn into K through 16, which results in people like not paying the bills. I mean, someone's going to pay the bill. Someone's going to pay something. So universal yeah. college would be other system. And then secondly, how do they not make universal free college just turn into a situation like Germany? Here's how Germany handles this issue. And I think this is a terrible solution. I think well, it makes sense for Germany. I think it's un-American given the way our country works. In Germany, they're incredibly tracked. So yes, yep. college is free um, in many respects. That's not perfectly free, but it's much cheaper than it is here. Um, the dorms aren't frilly. Um, there aren't really just like, there's no like Harvard of Germany. Mm -hmm. There's no Yale of Germany. There's no Oxford. There's no Cambridge. There's a bunch of like regional universities who like, are pretty straightforward. Lots of people commute. Lots to actually endorse about that vision. But the way they get there is by, you know, the early part of high school, they either send you to like a traditional trade high school or they send you to a gymnasium, which is a, which is like college prep. It's very specifically suited that way. And the reason why I don't like that vision of them solving the, how do we make this free thing worth it is because they basically say, you know, Sagar, how were you doing when you were 13? Yeah, exactly. That is going to determine right. Everything it's about terrible. your life. Like, dude, terrible. dude, you and I totally dicked around in high school. Yeah. Right. We dicked around in high school. <laughs> I dicked around in college, but look at me. I am now successful because I had time to figure things out. And I'm not the same person I was when I was 12, when I was 18, or who was who I was when I was 23. You're not who you were in 22. Mm -hmm. That I think go the, the, the German way of resolving the how do we make this free thing work is un-American. So I want to hear what an alternative to that is. I hate whenever people bring this up. The level of paternalism that European socialism requires, I'm never giving that shit up, like ever. Because like you just said, that applies, by the way, to almost everything, to healthcare, you know, 
I mean, look, I don't want to sound like a boomer, but it is legitimately true that they use triage care in ERs and stuff in Europe. And we don't. And listen, there's a lot of cost to that. Uh, personally, in emergencies, I'd be totally fine with bringing back triage. But uh, you don't want to know what that's going to look like uh, if you are on the lower end of the income or health spectrum and you walk into an ER and there's a zero-sum system. You also don't want to know what that's going to look like from college attainment. And, you know, there's a lot of class implications and things to that. The UK is very similar. You know, the, their college is just deeply classist the way that they run it, you know, in terms of Oxford, Cambridge, and then like the feeder schools and all that system. You do not want that here. And I don't want that here. I love the fact that a lot of people from mostly anywhere can go to a college if they do relatively well where they, you know, where they grow up. I think we should keep it that way. So the level of individual freedom that we would all have to sacrifice for such a system is just outrageous. And also, it's not like it works. You know, we do have the best universities in the world for a reason. And we also have the best economy in the world for a reason. So that level of attainment, like the dynamism that required, like Germany is very good at producing Germans. That's good if you're European. Uh, you know, Germany is the largest uh, economy on the continent fourth largest economy in the world, but we don't want to be German. Like, you know, there's just, there's an intrinsic nature to who we are uh, that I don't think that we should copy any of this. So I'll close with just summarizing all of this stuff because there's a lot here, but I think that gets to the core of the problem. One, I'm in favor of mass forgiveness, even forgiveness that pisses off people who've already been to college. Yes, completely if, agree. If and only if, it actually fixes the system because I think what we've made clear this episode is there are so many different stakeholders here that you need to give people something. You can't just tax the endowments. You can't yep. like basically there's no free lunch here. There is no just clean and dry, no cost things. So you're going to have to go with something that gets people pissed off. Now, I think this should actually be stated here. Um, ideally, if we had an effective higher education system, the whole country would benefit. So something I will say to boomers who are like, you know, you're getting this thing for free. What are we getting in return? Ideally, the system would lead to an America that is richer, more prosperous, better educated in the right context. Like maybe yep. there's a higher education system, which leads to us actually having manufacturing capacity again. If student loan forgiveness leads to that world, then great. great. Yeah. But it's then not, boomer, yeah. you are served. Right. If it doesn't, that's really what the real correction mm -hmm. comes down to. So yeah, so it really is just summed up by I'm okay with forgiveness. I'm against free college and there needs to actually, I'm, I'm against, I'm for forgiveness. Let me sum this up for forgiveness. If there's root and branch reform that's tied to a broader vision that actually knows what it's doing beyond if we send more people to college, even if the price goes up, it's okay because we'll forgive it every 10 or 20 years. That's my disaster. How would you sum this up, Sagar? Yeah, uh, I, I don't really disagree with any of that. I would just sum it up as student debt forgiveness has to be paired with college reform so that we don't have to do this over and over again. And that this has effectively politicized it in a way that I don't think that we will solve the problem. And I think that's the detriment of to the young people. And as the politicians always say, they are our future. So there you go. Hope you all enjoyed this uh, special discussion episode. We're about to transition into my interview with Beth Macy. But if you listen this far, we'd love for you to go to realignment.supercast.com to support the show and get access to all of the great bonus content. We will see you all next time.
Beth Macy, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me, Marshall. We were discussing this a little bit before the conversation started. You you mentioned that you really see that your last three books, including your current one, Lazarus Rising, are really thought of best as a series, almost. Not officially, obviously, but there's something there. Can you kind of like open by explaining how you see that? Sure. Well, as I was finishing up the reporting for Factory Man, which was my first book about the aftermath of globalization, it came out in 2014. So I was really finishing up the reporting in 2013. And I was, as I was finishing it up, that book is largely centered in small Appalachian towns who had lost like half of their jobs, not just the factories, but also the places where the former factory workers spent their money. And um, I was hearing from all kinds of people that the crime rate in say Martinsville, Virginia, which used to be this like lovely, small Southern town that had, believe it or not, the most millionaires per capita in the country at one point, suddenly half of the jobs had gone away and things like uh, disability had gone up uh, 64% since China joined the WTO. Food stamps had tripled. Um, and highest unemployment rate in the state for more than a decade. And then as I was finishing, drug crime was beginning to really become a big issue. And people were breaking into people's houses to steal Oxycontin, Xanax, et cetera. Uh, Don't know if they were doing it to resell. I mean, I had a civic leader friend of mine who helped me a lot with the book. She's actually the president of NAACP and helped me through the racial angle of the book a lot. Like she had been cornered at a CBS parking lot to, being asked to go inside and buy the ingredient Sudafed for the, the back then you could get it over the counter to make meth and heroin. And I just thought, wow, uh, I was really shocked. And then of course, by 2015, we had the economist Deaton and Case showing that our life expectancy was going down for the first time in American history. And it was largely due, the biggest factor was opioid overdose deaths, followed by suicide and cirrhosis of the liver, alcohol related. Uh, illness. And then we had the book Dreamland come out that sort of put America on alert that we had this heroin problem. My book, um, interestingly enough, I wanted it to be my second book, but I couldn't convince the gatekeepers in New York, i.e. my agent and my editor, that heroin was really a big thing. They thought we were just getting it in Roanoke, Virginia, like it was a thing from the 90s. And so by the time Sam's book came out and then we had this, you know, cover of Newsweek about deaths of despair, you know, I had my arguments in place to say this is happening more than just in my city, in the wealthiest neighborhood um, in Roanoke, Virginia, uh, which is not distressed like Martinsville. But but I was remembering that I'd been hearing that. And, you know, back then it was a real surprise that a small town would just be hobbled by heroin, you know. And so when I did Dope Sick, um, I looked into the economic factors at play there. So I guess the real opening question would be, and I'm sure you know this, but you know, as, as a podcaster, I a huge part of my job is kind of surveying the zeitgeist in terms of like what the national conversation is. And it seemed like from 2016 to 2020, the opioid crisis was just the perfect issue to tell the story of America in that period, in the sense that we thought this thing was past us, 
There's the economic challenge. There's like the racial angle. And we should really look at our society through that lens. Obviously, that narrative goes away for a while because of COVID. Um, you start to see many people who just prefer to have this despair talking about like the COVID angle. So I think a lot of folks probably haven't checked in. I'm not saying that lightly, just genuinely just haven't heard about the opioid narrative in, in, yeah, in a couple of years. Upon crises, right? Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's very sexual. So, so yeah, can you basically just assume a listener hasn't heard anything new since 2019? Yeah. What yeah. happened? What 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 did 2019 look like, and what changed? And I suspect got worse over the next three years. Interestingly, when I wrote my proposal for Dopesick in 2015, the epidemic was predicted to crest in 2018. That did not happen. It kept going up, and the true epidemiologists knew that because they had seen it going up even before OxyContin. Going back to the 80s, overdose deaths were going up. So it's a curve that looks like this. Uh, but since OxyContin came out in 1996, we've lost a million people and we're predicted to lose 2 million by just 2030. So it really is a curve going like this. Um, what happened when COVID hit was a lot of people were using alone with no one to Narcan them. Although a person I know just Narcaned himself the other night. So that's not uh, uh, impossible to do. But, um, you know, and then just the stress of COVID and people losing jobs. One of my doctor sources is a guy named Steve Lloyd, the, the Michael Keaton character in, in the Hulu show is actually loosely based on his story. He's a real treatment pioneer, but he himself is in recovery from OxyContin addiction initially. And he is an MAT doctor, medication assisted treatment. He prescribes buprenorphine for people with opioid use disorder or OUD. And he was describing when SAMHSA relaxed the guidelines because of this emergency of COVID because our you know, overdose deaths went up 30% right away, um, that suddenly he could initiate people on buprenorphine over telehealth. And that was something activists have been clamoring for for years, but not until uh, it was a danger to the providers to be around folks coming in because of COVID, did they make it actually easier for the patients to access it. And I'll never forget this. He said, um, you know, this is maybe four months in, he's like, Beth, this telehealth is great. Um, I can I can see people where they live. You know, he felt like he was learning more about them and he's super dynamic. and. His patients love him, but he goes like, I'm starting to see people who are losing their jobs and now they're Zooming me from their car with their kids doing Zoom school in the back seat. And they will check themselves out on the weekends so the whole family can take a shower in a hotel and then they're back in the car. I mean, and that is rough. One of the things I like that they loosened those guidelines, I'm hoping they just continue them because we have an 87% treatment gap in the country. That means that only 13% of people with OUD were able to access evidence-based medicine in the past year. I mean, that's abysmal. Could you give more context on the the real importance of the um, telehealth part? Because it's really interesting to me that you're telling the telehealth story in like a positive sense, because we're in the middle of a bit of telehealth backlash because you're seeing overprescription of medications in other contexts. So like this is probably the least stakes version of this, but there have been a lot of um, companies that have been dispersing ADHD medication 
via telehealth. Um, and if you're thinking of the opioid crisis, you could really tell a story about prescription, over-prescribing those different bits. So can you really just tell the the broader context on telehealth and whether you think it's a positive um, transition after the pandemic? Well, as somebody who writes about rural America, I think it's super positive because people don't have cars. Um, the largest group of people with opioid use disorder, and this is a 40% segment, it's the largest single segment, are people who identify as not wanting to get better. They don't want to access treatment. They don't think they can stop. And that's why we have to go to them where they are. A lot of them don't have transportation. Many of them are unhoused. And so I think telehealth is one of the tools in the toolbox to, to start to make connections with those and to begin to capture them into our systems of care. I, I'm all for it. I mean, I have uh, relatives who, uh, one of my uh, children is a traveling musician and they are on the road all the time. They use telehealth for their counseling, for the psychiatrist appointment. I mean, they couldn't do it without telehealth. So I I know there's an overprescription thing and, and we've got to be careful with it, but I mean, it's 2022. like. I, I mostly see it as, as a win. Going back to your statement about crest deaths cresting in 2018, why didn't, so why was the prediction even made that there, that, that, that not that the issue would be resolved, but why would, why was the issue expected to dial down by 2018 and why didn't it, why did deaths continue to spike? I don't know the answer to the first question. It was um, a friend of mine and I were talking about it. She covers opioids from Boston, which is so different than covering opioid problem in Appalachia. She pointed it out to me and I really just saw it almost, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, almost like a marketing tool. My book's going to come out in 2018. How timely. But it just, of course, it, it didn't go down because we haven't really moved the needle on offering treatment making make until we make the treatment easier to access than the dope it's we're, we're going to be stuck at this 87 percent treatment gap i mean it was 90 percent a couple years ago so we've moved it three points come on nation we can do better than that what we're doing now isn't working you know, I'm really interested in the use of the word we. Who 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 is we? Is is we like the medical community? Is it government, state, local, federal? Like how should we think of the forces or actors who should be moving that needle specifically? Well, I think of it as like everybody. So like at the end of the book, I kind of and I didn't do this at the beginning. I sent a draft to a friend of mine in Appalachia who is like the smartest person I know. His name is Robert Guy. He's got the biggest heart. And he's like, dude you have written two books about the opioid crisis stop telling me what you're seeing and tell me what you think so based on all my research and all my magic wand questions you see I, every person i meet i ask them you know well, how do we fix this um i kind of take my journalist hop, hat off off and I, I just get pissed off and i'm like these people shouldn't be working on duct tape and glue sister beth davies shouldn't be begging for money so she doesn't have to turn her lights off in her addiction center in the small town where the crisis first broke out. Like she works fucking too many hours anyways. Like let's, let's get her some help. Um, and so who, who's responsible for that? I mean, ultimately president Biden ran on, um, the campaign of, he was going to put, uh, 
sustained funding, and experts think it's going to take somewhere around 120 billion to turn this around, and not just grant things that run out in one or two or three years. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about activists complaining about bureaucrats that forgot to buy the goddamn Narcan and then missed the deadline. No, all this Narcan didn't get bought. You know, we need sustained funding like we had, and this is Congress too, like we had with the Ryan White CARES Act, that people with what HIV. The, what, what, yeah, okay, sorry, yeah. That people with HIV, AIDS, and this was largely due to activists on the ground, act up. Um, could able to access treatment on demand or free, right? And so until we have something like that here, because this group is so stigmatized, and I, and I know certainly that the AIDS organizations were really stigmatized too. I totally get that. But I think what's different is um, they are maybe not as inclined to advocate for themselves, you know? Um, and that's always true. I mean, I'm starting towards the end of the book. I report on a drug users union in Charleston, West Virginia, of all places. Like you wouldn't. That's kind of unusual. When the folks in Vancouver told me that that was how they got safe consumption started, they said, "You won't make real change until you get the people who are the most effective involved in making the change." And that was what uh, ACT UP did. And I thought, I just thought about all the people I knew in chaotic use, and I. I said to the guy, he has this great podcast called Crackdown. I said, guard, I can't see anyone that I've interviewed like becoming part of a drug users union. They're so beaten down. They're doing sex work, they're living in house. He goes, you will be surprised. And by golly, two years later, I watched it happen. I watched like the first meeting on Zoom in Charleston, West Virginia, a city where they treat drug users like crap. And what actually is a drug users union? Like what, what's different than just like a, I guess union is probably the right way to, but yeah, just describe what that physically is. Well, um, I've only been to one, at, but I've talked to Garth and he's really involved in Vandu, which is the Vancouver network of drug users. And they, um, you know, they uh, agitate for safe supply they agitate for, you know, starting with needle exchanges, then low barrier puke. They call it something else in Canada, um, and uh, agitate for less police kicking people out of homeless encampments and offering help instead. And it, but it's a fight. And some of the places have been shut down. There was one in Alberta, I think, that was shut down last year. And you know, at the end of his podcast, Garth goes, I got nothing. I am like without hope on this. And so they're struggling with the sort of rural backlash, conservative backlash too. But so, th so this guy in Charleston named Joe Solomon was really ticked off when they closed the needle exchange in Charleston in 2018 at the height of an HIV spike. They still have the most concerning spike in the nation. And so he talked to people at Vandu, the woman who founded it, and um, he called his CANDU, C-A-N-D-U, mm. which is for Charleston. And, um, you know, they have meetings, and the woman in Canada said, you know, pay drug users to come and listen to them. Don't you just decide the needle exchange should be our number one priority. Like, listen to what they have to say. And... Um, and I thought that was really cool. And so they paid them $10 a person to come. They fed them. I think the first meal was like spaghetti dinner. 
And then what were their main concerns? It wasn't um, needle exchange or fentanyl text strips. Their main concern was police brutality, followed by they wanted a place to shower, followed by they wanted friends. And, you know, they're still meeting and they got a law that or a bill uh, shut down. Uh, Charleston was going to outlaw sleeping in public parks and they all showed up in mass with all their supporters and they killed the bill, you know, so that's that's how it builds. But they've got a long way to go. How do you think cities should respond to this specific iteration of uh, homelessness crises in the sense of most people, I think, viscerally, you know, some from Portland, Oregon, um, and I live in Austin, Texas now, so you definitely will come to cities. And I was in D.C. during the height of COVID, and you'll just see um, mass encampments that didn't exist. Obviously, they they existed. People people existed, but th- there's a specific iteration um, that exists now. How should we think about the the set of challenges that are presented there? Yeah, well, well, obviously, not every person that's unhoused is a person with OUD, but many of them are. And so I approached it as when I was trying to understand what the harm reductionists that I was following were doing, I wanted to get into the history of it. So I called this guy in San Francisco and, you know, he talked about like starting the first uh, overdose. Um, It was like a mobile. They would go out during Haight-Ashbury in the 70s. And, you know, they tried to arrest him at first. Now they're giving him awards and that kind of thing. So I was getting the history of it. And then I was like, well, like, what are they doing there now with the rising homeless population? So then I called somebody who was doing what's called low barrier or low threshold work in San Francisco, largely with unhoused population. And these are social workers. Some of them are peer recovery specialists, people who have lived experience and are in recovery and um, a buprenorphine provider or a mobile methadone clinic. And I remember her saying, like, the key is you've got to make this available. It has to be walk in or us walk up to them, no appointment necessary. And I think, I mean, they were having great results. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the organization right off. But um, that was somebody who had trained Tim in Appalachia, Tim Nolan, who I started the book with, um, on how to do it. And because it was, he had done work with HIV patients and deinstitutionalization in DC and New York in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, But this was a new thing doing addiction treatment as street medicine. You know, something I'm wondering, um, there's obviously sort of like the narrative conversation around the opioid crisis we were describing, but the conversation has had a bunch of books, obviously, you know, the uh, Dope Sick Hulu series, to what degree has this real narrative shift played a role in changing how people think about this issue on the ground? Right? Do you see people being more sympathetic towards folks who are suffering as a result of opioids now than you would have, like, let's say in 2015? Like, how does that actually look like impact wise? Well, I don't know how to measure it, but I will tell you that when Dopesick came out, I had a piece about. Tess Henry, the young woman whose story I followed for two years, and she ends up because of abandonment of all the, you know, 
healthcare system, her family, etc. She ends up murdered while she's doing sex work in order to not be dope sick um, on Christmas Eve. And I did this piece um, that where I talk about the first time she got addicted um, was from an urgent care center. And the very first time I interviewed her in 2015, she said, well, what we need is urgent care for the addicted. And I didn't know what that meant. And she didn't know what it meant, but she meant like something as easy to get as she was prescribed these two 30 day opioids for a case of bronchitis, Jesus. And so I did this piece where she, you know, it ran in the New York Times and the Sunday Review and, and they did, it got so much feedback that they did a piece about the feedback. But I would say it was, and I talked a lot about the need to increase access to buprenorphine and methadone. And it was, it was AA folks, NA folks saying, well, I was a heroin user for 10 years and the only thing got me clean was just stopping cold turkey. You know, and, and it was like, I remember showing it to my editor and she's like, wow, these AA folks are really dug in on this. And so I did a similar piece. They ran this Monday in the Times um, and it was an excerpt. It was mostly about low barrier. Uh, again, similar. I, I feel like this book is really answering the question that Tess presented in 2015, what is urgent care for the addicted? And if you look at the, also had a ton of response, almost 500 responses. And it was much more nuanced and much more sympathetic. So, I mean, that's a New York Times audience. I don't know if that's for real, but let me just tell you this. I gave, uh, I, I write about it in the book, I gave a speech to all the sheriffs in Indiana and their governor was about to, they didn't tell me this, this was through my speaking agency. I did my prep call and I didn't kind of know what I was going into. And so I did my rah-rah about buprenorphine and my rah-rah about you don't have to, you could do treatment in your jail, like that's really cutting edge. And then people will stop coming back. And at the end of it, nobody clapped. And then finally, somebody in the first row was like, like slow clapping me. And they hated it. And uh, one sheriff goes, well, they're clean when they leave my jail, which is, by the way, when they're most likely to reuse, overdose and die because they're opioid naive. I mean, that just shows no understanding of the science behind addiction at all. And, but there I am with these guys with guns. Wait, could you could you explain that? So is so so why is that the, the the point when they're most likely to? Because they are at that point if they've been in jail say three months and you know a lot of jails you can get drugs but let's just say in his mind they're crystal clean when they leave. Why should he put them on a drug that he doesn't believe in because he thinks it's treating drug addiction with another drug? Um, he's made them perfect in his jail. I mean, they haven't had any treatment, but they've had to detox and they're clean. And, and then all the science shows that at the moment, released from jail, if, if one suffers from SUD, substance use disorder, they are 29 times more likely to die, to overdose and die, because now there's fentanyl in all the drugs and also they're opioid naive, their tolerance has gone. So that's why they're more likely to die, 29 times more likely to die. So I can't make that sheriff read the data. You know, I can stand up there and say it, but I will tell you that I gave a talk to some law enforcement officers on Friday. This is another kind of example of subtle shift for all the county commissioners in North Carolina. And there were law enforcement people in the room. I mean, I could tell because they had uniforms on. It was a pretty conservative bunch. It's a red state. 
non-Medicaid expansion state. And I gave a talk about the new book and, um, you know, with even more great innovative examples of what urgent care for the addicted is. And at the end, about two thirds of the audience stood up and applauded. Mm-hmm. And I'm really surprised because they sat there, they're kind of stone faced, you know, they're just like, but it's hard to know how to react with this sort of story. Yeah. And, um, and I said to my husband, I said, I got an almost standing O and he goes, the other third of the people that were just, you know, cause by that point, it's like you're at a Broadway show and like everybody's standing up, you just stand up whether you agree or not. But no, these people were like purposely not standing up. And my husband said, well, they saw that other people were standing up. And then um, I talked to somebody later who was there for the rest of the conference. I had to leave after. And she's like, oh, we were talking about what you said all day long. And so that's good. I mean, that's really good because these are the people that are going to decide what to do with the opioid settlement money. And yeah, talk about talk about that. Yeah. So some states have a like, um, forget if it's Massachusetts or New York, have like, I think it's called a lockbox where all that money has to be spent on treatment, prevention, uh, harm reduction, which is great. But, you know, we are a nation really run by the states. And so a lot of states aren't doing that. In fact, in North Carolina, only half of the counties, there are 100 counties, um, only half of the 100 counties have even have a point person designated to help. You know, you need an infrastructure. If you're going to get $500,000 from the distributor case, which some communities are, like, how are you going to spend that? You're just going to take it to county commissioners and they're going to be like, oh, we got, we need to arrest all these people. I mean, that's not what it should go for, but I'm worried it will unless there is, um, well, actually, North Carolina has a memorandum of understanding that is supposed to mean it goes for treatment. But I mean, is there going to be a lot of oversight on that? Uh, was there very much oversight when uh, the FDA, FDA approved OxyContin? <laughs> I mean, it, there needs to be oversight. And now we have, you know, journalism is getting smaller by the day. So that's like note to self. I want to find out what's happening with that money. I mean, I'm not the only reporter that'll be chasing that, but I think it's going to be really important. So we make sure that what happened with the DePaco money, which was the largest settlement in history, um, you know, most of it got uh, squandered on uh, potholes and golf courses and, you know, not things that it wasn't meant to be spent on. Well, this is interesting. Maybe I'm incredibly naive, but it doesn't seem like $500,000 is that much money. And I think well, so. For a so small what, town in yeah. North Carolina. I mean, um, right. So the distributors are paying. 26 billion over a number of years. Sorry, I don't remember the number right off the top of my head. The Purdue money, when it comes, is supposed to, right now, it's an appeal, it's supposed to be 6 billion over 18 years, which gives the the, the family uh, time to earn some interest on the rest of that money, right? Um, so some of the settlements are being front loaded at the beginning because we're in the middle of this national crisis. So. Um, I forget the guy in Mount Airy told me how much money they got last month and it, it seemed pretty sizable. He could afford to, I mean, he's got a staff of 12 people responding to overdoses now. He did not have that before. So okay. but he's been working on his infrastructure. I mean, these peers make like $40,000, $30,000. Uh, it, it can like, 
And what I say is it's not necessarily, it's not high tech that's going to save this. It's, it's low tech and high touch. You know, it's not even stuff that's got to cost a gazillion dollars. It's things like what Tim is doing at the beginning of the book when he's meeting somebody in a parking lot because he's not well enough, resourced enough to come to his clinic. He's going to him. You know, I had a I had an experience when I was uh, prepping for this show with our our researcher. He um he's he's in college, so he was he's very young. Um, and I'm from Oregon, so like I I had to um I was talking about the meth crisis and how like how it was. You know, like I'm I'm not from Salem, Oregon, but Salem, Oregon was like at one point the meth capital of the country, and I was describing it. And he just didn't really know that much about the meth issue because it seemed like that had either moved off the radar or had been solved. I'm curious if you think that the opioid crisis will ever reach a similar state as in either it's solved quote unquote, or we're not having the same conversation for what feels like decade after decade after decade. Well, with the number of a treatment gap of 87%, I think it's going to be a long time. I really do. I worry that it is. And, and the meth thing is, there isn't a, even a medication-assisted treatment of medicine for meth. One thing that they found works is contingency management, which is sort of like basically giving people incentives, financial incentives to stop using and counseling. But, you know, we're still a nation that has 12 states that haven't passed the Medicaid expansion. So in North Carolina, that means half the people with OUD don't have any way to get treatment at all about half. Um, so that's why I think it would be great back to our earlier question, which I don't think I answered fully, just if, if Congress could get behind a, a Ryan White type act for this. With the numbers, every time the numbers come out, they're worse. Uh, data in June showed that of the people with opioid use disorder, we were undercounting it by a factor of four. So it went from two to almost eight million people with it. And um, I don't know. I think something folks are going to be wondering right now is we have really focused in this discussion on the after effect. So once someone is addicted, once your town is going through this issue, how do you think in the year 22 we should think of the pre-stages before someone's been exposed to opioids before there's the risk of fentanyl how is that side of this crisis being managed now yeah um that's a question that gives me in a lot of trouble uh interesting um when dopsa came out in 18 a couple years prior to that the cdc had written rewritten the guideline for opioid prescribing to make it much less certain that a person who was injured would get you would only get an opioid if it was a really serious injury and you're in a ton of pain so because purdue had shifted the narrative now opioids are safe for not just end of life and cancer but a backache tmj you know wisdom teeth pull i mean who doesn't have back pain and um so we needed to clamp down on that but the clamping down on it scared so many doctors especially those that were targeted for overprescribing by the dea that a lot of doctors overreacted and cut people off their pain meds and which 
they didn't think they were addicted. They were dependent on oxy or oxycodone or Percocet or whatever, uh, but they weren't shooting it up. They weren't um, using more than they were prescribed. And if they get abandoned, it's just as bad as tests getting abandoned, right? And many of them um, have gone to the black market, so they won't be so dope sick too. So we've got to we got to have more nuanced understanding about pain and um, addiction and how they sometimes overlap. And this idea of forced tapering, I mean, I go into that in one of the chapters in the new book, largely because I've been like hammered by the pain, chronic pain patients. And at first I was just like, oh, are they shills for Purdue? Maybe some of them are, but you know, I wanted to find out. So I, so I called some of them back. Some of them were bombing my Twitter and I called them and I talked to them and they were reasonable people, reasonable people. And one man um, was speaking for his wife who had rheumatoid arthritis since the age of 11. And, and she was her doctor that was prescribing her these steady pain dosages got arrested for over prescribing. Now, according to this family, they, she wasn't being over prescribed. She was using it as directed. Whether he's a bad doctor or not, I don't know. I wasn't the investigator. But all of a sudden, this woman finds herself yanked off her medicines. Nobody else will take her because when you look at her record, like, oh, holy cow, she's on this insane amount of opioids, but totally appropriate for the condition she had. And now she's in bed all day. Her quality of life is tanked. And so I get that. And so we need more training around the issue of pain. There's a terrific book called In Pain by a bioethicist named Travis Reeder, that's spelled R-I-E-D-E-R, um, who himself got in a terrible motorcycle accident and nearly found himself addicted. He was definitely dependent, and but he realized he had been totally abandoned by everyone that was supposed to help them. And by some miracle, he just was able to get himself up and he realized it could have gone either way. And so then as a bioethicist, he parses what's happening now. And so there has been, I think the CDC guideline that got revised has now been loosened to be a little bit more humane um, in terms of the chronic pain community. And sorry, what's the difference between dependent and addicted? Addicted is you are dependent is like a physical dependence. Addicted is physical and mental, and also you will be, um, it will be uh, having negative consequences on your life. You're stealing, you're, I mean, it's any kind of negative consequence. Your family has, a, you're stealing, you've stolen from your family, you're fighting. Interesting. So just to sum up this last section, then you, you laid out the number of, you know, 2 million deaths by 2030. If you were to just be appointed, you know, opioid czar of the Biden administration or whatever comes after that. What, what would be your top suggestions, top to bottom, to for preventing that prediction from coming to pass? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would elevate the drug czar's position to a cabinet level position. And there's a real Which is more bureaucratic politics. That, that's, that's, sorry, that's, that's probably a good answer no matter what context. <laughs> right. But I mean, um, in the early 70s, believe it or not, before the war on drugs or around the same time he was starting it, a lot of veterans were coming back from Vietnam addicted to heroin. And President Nixon hired this cranky 
uh, addiction psychiatrist uh, named Jerome Jaffe. And he said, we got to do something about this. And he reported directly to Nixon and he gave him the powers of the purse. And Jaffe, he said it took him six or seven days to design this. I, 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 and I can't see how that could possibly be true, except for that he didn't have to go through all these hoops. And he wasn't a politician. Um, there's a great book about this called The Fix uh, by Michael Massing. Uh, and he writes something like, only somebody so unschooled in the ways of Washington would have acted so nervily in the face of so much brass. Like, he just didn't give a crap. And he did it. He designed this program. There were 300 standalone methadone clinics all across the nation. So you could go in without an appointment, you could be seen, you would get counseling, you could get, if you need help with housing and social supports, you could get it. And that's what we need now. We've been here before. But then, so back in that moment, all of the federal money spent on addiction was a, a formula of 70% treatment, 30% incarceration. Now it's exactly opposite. Mm-hmm. And we have all, these employees employed by government agencies that prop up the drug war. And um, so I think we got to get shift back to that older funding model. That's what I would work on if I was the drug czar, which I have no qualifications for, by the way. But to your point, there was there was something to be had in someone not understanding how DC works. Maybe there's a qualification there in of itself. I think for the last question, I'll just ask because like I really just like the idea of thinking of this like globalization era America, 21st century, um quasi-trilogy narrative you you started the episode off with. It's it's just really interesting. I I'd love to hear just what is by studying these sets of issues, it feels like you've really studied just like the least optimistic parts of our country right now. Um, <laughs> just out of like all the different beats that someone could focus on, like this is near the top of them. I, I'd love just to hear your optimism, pessimism, or neutrality on just like the country right now, just moving forward. If we're treating the opioid crisis as like this like metaphor for the country itself. Yeah. Well, I think with the settlement money coming, it's really a once in a lifetime opportunity to do some correction but our politics are so bad i mean i think dr josh 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 sharfstein from johns hopkins says it well in the book when he says that you know we know what to do we just don't have the political will to make it happen and you know since i started the book you know we've had an insurrection that feels like things have only gotten worse charleston for instance why does a place like Charleston re- respond to an HIV crisis by like shutting down needle exchange? The one thing that's proven to stop HIV. And, um, and yet an hour away in Huntington, they have a walk-in clinic and sobering centers and help with housing. And, and it's, it's the politics are just really, really toxic there. And a lot of people who have been um, left behind by the economy and by all these changes, um, they they blame the wrong people. They they're not blaming Purdue and McKesson and the lobbyists who, which is the pharma lobby, is the biggest lobby in America, and the billionaires or the 
the judge drains of the world and the, the, the leaders who aren't doing bankruptcy reform. So this could all happen again. They're blaming the people they know in their communities that are stealing from them. And they're not, they're acting out of emotion and their own pain and their own trauma about their communities and the jobs going away. And um, in my opinion, they're, they're, they should be putting the blame much higher above that. I think that's a good place to leave it. Beth, thank you so much for joining joining the show. I'm sure this is definitely one of those, because you're framing this as an issue, it's going to continue onwards. I'd love for you to shout out just like a couple of like resources, other books, things that people should look into yeah. if they want to go deeper on this topic. Because this is not, there are some topics where you can do like 45 minutes and cover it, but like this isn't it. Like where the, other than obviously your other two books, um, where should yeah. where should folks also go? Other books, um, that's a really good question. I love Patrick Ryden Keefe's Empire of Pain, which tells the story of uh, the Sackler family and uh, how, how this fraudulent marketing campaign all went down. Um, Sam Canonis has a new book called The Least of Us. It's, my book differs from it because he's, he's a cops reporter. I'm a family's reporter. I mean, that's all you need to know. Is this more about the law enforcement angle? I think, I think that's not working. We've got to do something else. So, but props to him. He is, he's the OG of opioid book writing. Um, other sources. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up a little short on that. Look, I do I do three of these a week. You've given like a ridiculous number of recommendations throughout the episode. So I will I, you, you, I, I'm, I'm serious about this. You've, you've given like seven, eight or nine different books to check. So uh, I think that's a oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So Beth, thank you so much for joining on the show. Um, the book is available at our bookshop, which is the preferred place for folks to go. But it's also available at Amazon and other local booksellers as well, too. Once again, thank you for joining us on the realignment. Thanks, Marshall. I really enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like this sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.